Drive with Mike Wills. In for John Matham. On Cape Talk. 3.48 on a Thursday. Thursday means the ever-popular Rebecca Davis from Daily Maverick with her Plan B. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon, Mike. How nice to hear you again. And very nice to chat to you. One of those popular segments on the show. I can confirm that. All right, everyone's saying, what should we do about Ukraine? I suppose we should be saying, what on earth can we do about the situation in Ukraine? Your take on South Africa's response or lack thereof. Well, the sense I'm getting is that most people believe South Africa is reluctant to criticize Russia out of fear of upsetting their Moscow and also potentially Beijing overlords. And there's almost definitely some truth to that, Mike, as we can see from the fact, particularly that members of the executive seem to have taken to using Russia as their kind of personal medical emergency suite. But it's also true that South Africa has failed to take a strong stance internationally on almost any issue for literally years. And the only two exceptions to that that I can think of off the top of my head are, first of all, the Israel-Palestine issue, and second of all, the people of Western Sahara, their fight for self-determination against Morocco. The ANC has been absolutely steadfast on that position. And with all due respect to the people of Western Sahara, Mike, I have to say that does seem like a slightly niche issue in the context of geopolitics. Even when it comes to Israel, though, there's some suggestion, for instance, that Lindiwe Sisulu was shuffled out of her position as Durko minister a few years ago by Ramaphosa because she was taking too vocal a stance on that and he was being lent on, it is alleged, to kind of soften that stance. So even on Israel, there's been a certain amount of ambivalence evident within the ANC on how to tackle that issue. The other point is, Mike, that It's also probably true that South Africa has long ago squandered any claim to being a moral authority. I mean, this used to be the kind of trademark we had on the global stage right in the era of Mandela. And in particular, our kind of foreign policy brand was built on recommending peacekeeping, diplomatic solutions. You know, there always had to be a peaceful answer to every problem because that was in theory, the narrative of how South Africa had solved its own problems. And if in doubt, set up a truth commission. And if in doubt, set up a truth commission. But, I mean, the reason we've squandered that right now is, first of all, because of what's happening, what has been happening at home, on the home front, for many, many years. But second of all, because, for a start, all South Africa's fellow BRICS members have been accused credibly of various horrific forms of human rights abuses, and South Africa has shown absolutely no objection to continuing to maintain close relationships there. And we also know that at the United Nations, South Africa has developed this very clear record of abstaining or voting against crucial human rights investigations into other countries, again with the notable exception of Israel. We know that we failed to detain the Sudanese dictator Omar al-Bashir in 2015, The government has also accepted problematic elections in Zimbabwe, more recently in the DRC. So one might also, I think, legitimately ask on what basis should the government stand up so forcefully in support of Ukraine when it's failed to do the same for countries much closer to home under different forms of democratic attack. Also, there's the fact that when South Africa very rarely has taken kind of decisive action, it has expressed regret almost immediately afterwards. March 2011, for instance, when South Africa voted at the UN in favour of airstrikes on Libya, Gaddafi's regime, and then basically immediately said that had been a terrible, catastrophic mistake. And, you know, so from one perspective, Mike, I think as much as we might wish South Africa would take a strong stance on this issue, it's totally unsurprising that they aren't. And the other thing is that 
Although this seems like a refreshingly clear-cut moral issue, right? Because Putin's invasion seems morally unjustifiable, however you look at it. It is also clear from recent global history that following the West into war is not always or perhaps even often a good idea, as we know from the recent examples of Afghanistan, of Iraq, etc. So there is also a case to be made for not jumping to join the West so forcefully and so quickly in cases like this. Not necessarily I'm not trying to claim that Russia is in any way justified in its actions here, but there is a case to be made that South Africa shouldn't cravenly follow the West, particularly on an issue that arguably is so very far removed from us. And then I want to bring in something else, Mike. I'm aware I'm kind of monologuing at you here. And that is that one of the hypocritical aspects of this all is that the reason economic sanctions against Russia seem particularly ludicrous now is that the West has for years been extending a red carpet to oligarchs who have made their money in corrupt and human rights oppressing ways in Putin's regime and everybody knows that. And that brings me to another issue which is that one of South Africa's most significant companies, NAFTA, owns a significant stake of Russia's top internet group, VK, along with the Russian state, along with Putin allies, should we not also then be putting some kind of pressure on NASA? I'm not suggesting in any way that, that their responsibilities are equivalent to Pretoria's when dealing with human rights matters. But there is an argument here that the business element of this has largely been left, you know, kind of, well, neglected. And I think that often does happen in this country in, in a variety of different ways. Not to mention uh, Naspers' considerable interest in China. But we'll move right along. Political party funding disclosures. Interesting stuff, eh? I always find them interesting, Mike, um, mainly because we didn't have them for so many years that now I almost feel obliged to take particular interest when they do come along. And I'm really reassured to see that the latest set shows that many more parties are starting to disclose. We still have to raise eyebrows about whether it's really credible that parties like the EFF or indeed the Freedom Front Plus have not received a single donation over 100,000 rand before October 2021, so nothing for the first two quarters. I have doubts about the likelihood in both those cases, but we'll take it on faith at this point. But what I was particularly interested in in the latest set, Mike, was the ANC once again brought in by far the highest amount of donations for one party, which was 56.1 million. And over the financial year, so far three quarters, it has hauled in almost 90 million rand, which is a fair whack for a party which constantly claims to be broke. But when you break down the sources of those funding, it is very clear that the majority of the funding is coming from effectively the ANC's inner source in, in a circle. So previously, President Cyril Ramaphosa has personally bailed at the, the ANC. His brother-in-law, Patrice Motsepe, has been a constant donor to the ANC, and this time around, he extended his generosity to other parties. And then in the past, there's been the ANC's investment arm, Chancellor House, which has been bailing out the ANC. This time around, Chancellor House isn't there, neither is Ramaphosa, but there's another ANC-linked trust, Bato Bato, making the highest single donation to the ANC at 15 million rand. You take that, and Bato Bato is a trust established by Nelson Mandela. I mean, it's not formally an ANC kind of bank account, put it that way, but it is definitively a kind of ANC financial vehicle. Bato Bato and Patrice Motsepe basically amount to the, almost the entirety of the ANC's donation this, this quarter. So without those ANC-linked donations, the ANC would have raised less than 2 million rand in the last quarter. 
And, you know, it just strikes me of what a, a, a telling sign this is of the lack of confidence in the ANC from, you know, the moneyed classes, particularly in combination with their shrinking electoral fortunes. I think it's very possible that there's a credible belief that donating to the ANC is effectively donating to corruption because you have so few guarantees that that money will reach its intended purpose. And also, how, you, long, how long will your influence last? How much influence are you buying? Is, is this a good long-term bet? That's exactly right. And we see very clearly that the people with real money, I'm talking Stellenbosch, businessmen, etc., are opting for the DA. DA, obviously, very pro-business. So is still Ramaphosa, but he is clearly being hamstrung by the rest of his party in that regard. It is just interesting to see how perilously close the AMC is actually on teetering on the brink of kind of real financial penury, if it were not for rich individuals very intimately linked to the party itself. Interesting stuff. Rebecca, as always, thank you very much. That's Rebecca Davis of the Daily Maverick and her plan B.